The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Hello everyone, my name is Juliana Aiken. I'm the host of the Unfiltered podcast and a co-founder of Unfiltered. Today I'm interviewing Leanne Cameron. She's a registered counseling therapist and her passion is working to support individuals who feel disconnected from their authentic selves. Her self-discovery and empowerment journey led to her wanting to help others understand what their journey can mean for them and that it's never too late to improve your life. Leanne believes that once underlying emotions and beliefs are identified, we can liberate ourselves from destructive patterns and live more authentically. In today's episode, Leanne will share five different strategies that you can use to overcome the self-blame that narcissistic abuse causes. Let's get started. Could you provide five actionable strategies for overcoming self-blame after experiencing narcissistic abuse? And for each strategy, could you walk us through how to implement it into our daily lives and explain the reason each strategy works? Yeah, for sure. Um, So the first one I want to bring up is pretty obvious. And I think it's repeated in a lot of different subject matter that pertains to somebody with narcissistic abuse history. And that's the issue of boundaries, because unless you're really focused on the boundaries that you have, you set yourself up to potentially be um, under attack on a regular basis and not firmly cemented in the ability to actually do the work you have to do in order to understand what is actually happening to me in the way that I'm referencing myself in the way that I'm, you know, in some way internalizing more responsibility perhaps than I should. Unless I have the boundaries in place, I'm not going to give myself the space and the freedom to truly do that work and understand the reality I'm dealing with. Um, So that's right away. The first thing is making sure that if you suspect that there's an issue of narcissistic abuse going on, that you give yourself permission and an opportunity to close yourself off, even if it's only temporary, because you're not sure what to do, at least in some way define it so that it feels reasonable to you. And it doesn't continue to double down on, oh, am I the problem? Am I being unreasonable? Am I being um, oversensitive or whatever? Just give yourself permission to even for a week, even for whatever it is, but for some amount of time, give yourself a real solid sense of, I'm going to turn to myself and make sure that nobody else has the ability to undermine my work and undermine or second guess what it is that I absolutely have to at least give myself a chance to look at. So that goes right back to any places that the person could potentially have access to your energy, which means any social media, your phone. um, Well, actually, even if you're able to physically remove yourself, that would be good. Sometimes people will have to literally leave. And I've had clients that at times they'll say, I've got to get out of here. And they will leave their premises and go away for a week or two weeks or something just to give themselves that clarity that they need. So I think whatever you need to do, don't shortchange whatever those options might be, depending on the nature of the relationship and really allow yourself to be cordoned off so that you can actually do what you need to do to start looking at it. Mm, okay. So let me kind of clarify and ask for if I understood correctly. So when some, when we're trying to overcome the self blame that narcissistic abuse causes, you are saying that set boundaries in a way that well, of course, if you're able to physically leave for mm-hmm. some uh, period of time, but at least set some type of internal boundaries if you're not able to physically leave that allow mm-hmm. you to have the space to further explore, for example, the origins and reasons for the self-blame and what's going on in within you and mm-hmm. also in the relationship. And uh, yeah, so and can you... So is this is this what you mean first? Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. And the reason I just want to, you know, add on to that why this is so important, but maybe sometimes people don't realize this is a necessary first step is the very nature of a person being exposed to narcissistic abuse is because they've had no boundaries. They've had no sense of what it's like to actually know I'm my own person. I'm not an appendage of another person, but because of our conditioning, whether that be when we were children and we were raised in narcissistic families, or if we've been exposed to narcissistic abuse, maybe in the workplace or with friendships or something, there is a sense from that person of owning you or demanding something from you. And 
in a way you feeling like, well, that's what a good person does. A good person attends to people. A good person sacrifices time for people. A good person considers people. And in a healthy relationship, you do. But if you're dealing with a narcissist, they profit off that. And instead, what they do is they take like a vampire, they will suck the energy from you and you won't be able to discern properly. Well, is this reasonable? Is this a healthy relationship where there's an interaction and a transaction that's appropriate? Or is this really somebody taking advantage of me? Cause I've never known what it's like to be grounded within myself and understand if it's healthy or not. So you almost want to go to an extreme, even though that's very foreign and very uncomfortable maybe, but to really allow yourself to say, hmm, what would it be like if I gave myself permission for even a short period of time to attend to myself, maybe for the first time in my life, to really look at me and what is happening physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, everything with myself. And the only way to do that is if no one else is competing for your energy and attention, because you will likely abandon yourself again, because you're just going to be prompted to that same old calling of, oh, they matter. Or that's what I always stood for. Oh, I always take care of people. I always make it better. So you will continue to forget what you need to do if an opportunity comes up where you think, oh, oh I better go and attend to that instead. So you really have to double down on just creating some way of um, making sure that you are protected in your own energy and take care of that sacred time to yourself. Mm, okay. Okay. So, because I, whenever I feel, uh, when I, whenever I hear the word boundaries, like it just, I just think so many different things that a person can set boundaries with and sure. about. So when we are really talking about what about what you just said, so let's say someone, there's two people, a person who can leave the environment and a person who cannot leave the environment. Can you just break it down very simply? Uh, how the person number one who can leave the environment, would the boundary be go somewhere else for a period of time and then uh, yeah, I assume that would be the easiest and simplest way to set a boundary that really protects you and makes it impossible for someone else to suck energy out of you. And then, of course, during that period, do not have contact with them. It doesn't help if you go somewhere else, but then you keep texting or calling or, you know. But then I feel like the harder might be the if you cannot leave the environment, that's like harder. So can you give more specific advice? How do you then set the boundary that you were, were just talking about, like to create that space for you to really, uh, yeah. So that gets very complicated. So what you're saying, if it was a situation where say it was um, a husband and wife or, or, or partners in a relationship yeah. or um, parent child or something where you're actually in the home together, is that kind of yes. a situation? Yeah. Up? Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely more challenging because the tension a person would feel knowing I'm trying to serve two masters here because I'm trying to maintain my integrity while I'm very aware that that person has access to me can be really debilitating. So I think that maybe you're not going to get the full amount of full boundary the way that you would want it, but you're going to have to settle in some way with what is good enough. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's sometimes a term we have to lean into is, is it enough for me to gain some sense of space from the person? So maybe that might mean that um, I allow myself to, I don't know, um, good Lord, I'm thinking about, does that mean that in the evening I retreat to my own space so that I can journal or something? Does that mean that I take drives by myself or I go on hikes, walking on my own or something? Um, I think maybe it's how I'm intentionally spending my time if I have the ability to be by myself, because oftentimes we're going to fill our time up with whatever, because we've got things we have to do. We have to get groceries. We have to take care of our children. We have to go to school. We have jobs. We have all these things. So maybe it's only going to be these very precious moments that you have an intention of saying, I have to give myself as if it was homework. It's got to be one of my responsibilities, just like getting my groceries and everything. I have to make time that allows me to sit with myself and be cordoned off from anyone accessing me at all. Mm. Because that is by, by and large, that's the most tormenting thing is when a person doesn't have the ability to go no contact in the way that we would want them to. You know, if I was just dating somebody, I could say, well, you know what, I'm not going to answer your emails or your texts or things like that. And I am going to have a little more power, but it's certainly more complicated. And so maybe it's going to take a little more time also of that, specific moments of boundaries where you can attend to yourself. 
Mm, yeah, but that's that's still like very very helpful advice because, uh, yeah, like like at least when you said that to me, I don't feel like helpless about my situation that much. Like as if like oh, there's nothing you can do if you are in that environment, you know. So that's yeah. that's really yeah. uh, you know helpful. And you know, I would just say, um, Juliana, even on that is that to remind any listener, there's no timeline for this. When we've been conditioned to these sort of feelings, you have to realize it's going to take a while to pull yourself out of it. So don't put any expectations of a timeline and any sense of, well, I should be through this by now. If I've given myself a couple of weeks to make sense of it or something, depending on each unique situation, it may take a longer time. It may take more effort. It might don't compare. I think that's what sets us up to then go back to the self blame is that it doesn't look like I thought it should. So there must be something wrong with me. You know, know that you're special, you're unique, and your situation will require something specific for you and be patient and compassionate with yourself while you set up those conditions to start doing the work. Mm, yeah, thank you. That makes so much sense. Can you very briefly now summarize? Okay, so the first strategy to overcome the self-blame that narcissistic abuse causes, you said boundaries. Can yeah. you summarize briefly why this works when we are trying to overcome the self-blame? Because without boundaries, you are open up to continually go back to that narrative of it's my fault. It's my fault. I'm a, you're not giving yourself any moment of pause to consider another reality. You're just habitually being stuck in a place of what you've normalized, you know, and it's just like our brain is lazy. I think that's very important for people to understand. The brain is very lazy in so much as once it learns something, it's a creature of habit and it will keep going through a narrative that it it's used to, even if it's wrong, because it just doesn't want to work so hard. So that's why this is not easy when you're doing any of this work. So the boundaries are essential to break that pattern of that normalized sense of, oh, but that's just what I think. That's what I think. That's what I think. So no matter what it is, just have an open heart to say, I want to just take some time to think about, is there another thing maybe going on here aside from self-blame? Because that's just boom, where I go. Mm, yeah, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. So yeah, so when we are trying to overcome the self-blame that uh, narcissistic abuse causes, the first strategy you just gave was boundaries. What is the next one? Well, the next one that I decided to go with is what I, I'm just calling discernment. And discernment is the first part, I guess, also of the work you're doing once the boundaries are in place so that you can actually start looking at things. So the discernment for me means maybe I've been living off a fantasy world or un, like something that's not reality because it was the reality for somebody else and what they needed. But that doesn't mean it's a healthy reality. So I need to start discerning what is healthy versus what is unhealthy, what is appropriate and nurturing versus what is abusive. You know, what is profiting only one person while it's hurting me? Um, you know, is it inclusive? Is this a relationship of mutuality and reciprocity? Or is it a relationship that is very one sided where there's a power differential? So I need to start gathering facts, I need to have time to really sit down because with narcissistic abuse, or any type of manipulation from a toxic person, you are under siege in a campaign of selfishness with one person and you get lost. And it's a very slow campaign until you get to a place where you don't even understand what is real anymore because somebody else owns your reality now. Somebody owns who they think you are. You've lost all sense of what is going on. And you just, again, just uh, comply. So you need that discernment to be able to sit down and say, okay, I got to start doing some fact finding here. And I've got to act as if I'm reporting on my own life and I want to start journaling about it. I want to look at specific events because one of the things we do is we twist what happens and we romanticize it over time. And what I mean by that is say uh, you and I are in a relationship that's actually toxic in the moment. I might go to one of my friends uh, perhaps or, or whatever and say how bad something was that happened. And I may be really confused about it, but over time I'll start giving you the benefit of the doubt over time. I'll start adapting more of the, Oh, but maybe, Maybe I did this. Maybe I did that. And I will twist it to fit back into keeping in your good graces so that this relationship can carry on. So sometimes it's important that that discernment means when something major happens, I chronicle it so that when I'm feeling vulnerable and I'm questioning it, I have some reference to go back to and say, no, wait a minute, I need to clarify because I know 
I'm vulnerable. I know that potentially I fall into this pattern where I forget how bad it was. And I just assume the blame and the responsibility because that's how I'm conditioned. I've got to figure out how to make this work. And if I don't, I failed. So I have to discern reality from um, what is actually happening. And that might mean also, um, you know, I recommend to some clients, did you ever look at your core values and beliefs when it comes to what a healthy relationship looks like? And that might be different for people, right? It's not that we all have the same value system. But if I'm sitting there and I'm saying, well, you know, I think a healthy relationship would be about respect. And it would be about support. And it would be about an eagerness and a curiosity of respecting and acknowledging different opinions and different ways of living and stuff. And then I sit and say, okay, if those are the qualities, is that what's showing up in my relationship? Or am I bullshitting myself? Am I ignoring the facts because I'm so desirous of thinking the relationship is okay because I'm tough enough to keep moving with it in a way that's hurting me, but I don't even see it as that because all I'm looking at as, oh no, I'm still in the relationship. I'm still doing it. I'm still proving how tough I am. That's not a healthy relationship, proving how tough you are at bending. You know, you're not a Cirque du Soleil performer. <laughs> you shouldn't be bending and twisting just to make sure that the relationship is working. But if you continue um, glossing over what is actually happening, then you're never really going to land with that true awareness. So discerning by reality checking to journaling, um, coming up with your own true template of what would a healthy relationship for me look like? And is that actually occurring? And um, even I just want to make sure I'm, I'm following what I jotted down here. If you know you have a trusted friend, perhaps, and that's you have to be very careful because with narcissistic relationships, you will often have other people that only see the version of the narcissist that looks charming. So you have to be super careful just because you think you have a friend that you could rely on does not mean that they are going to understand what you're actually dealing with. So it is probably better that you go to a third party that doesn't know anything about you or the person like a therapist or something, someone that you can say, listen, I don't know what's going on. But I'm willing to share with you some information because I need someone to help guide me and help me navigate because I'm confused. And this is happening so often. I'm wondering, is it me? Because I need someone to help me discern. And if you're really feeling overwhelmed with what's been going on, you may not be able to as much as you try to go with the facts and to look at your core values and beliefs. You may still need somebody to help you with that. When I was learning about polyvagal theory, you know, one of the things I loved about that um, modality is the term story follow state. And so what that means is whatever is going on physically within my body, whatever is being activated within my body is going to inform my brain to think something. And so if I have been conditioned to be stressed and anxious, confused, if I feel like I think I'm doing what's good, but then something changes, it's going to leave my body feeling very unsure and constantly in a chronic state of anxiety and tension because I'm I'm feeling like everything is always moving. The rules are changing. The reality is not something I can depend on that's consistent. So if my body is feeling very stressed and, and uncertain and never really feeling safe, it's informing my brain to come up with some crazy thoughts probably that I shouldn't trust either. And so that's the other part of discernment. Is it necessarily that this activation I'm feeling means I'm to blame? Or is that activation I'm feeling actually because my body is saying it doesn't feel safe in this relationship? And so I need to understand body activation doesn't necessarily mean I'm a bad person or I'm failing. It could just mean that I'm compromising myself and something is wrong. And I also need to look at it. So the discernment piece is teasing out what I've conditioned myself to think was okay and normal and deal with versus what I got to start being a little more clear on gaining clarity. Mm, yeah, thank you so much. That was really helpful. I was also thinking that does your uh, all these things that you just said, do these also apply after, let's say you are not anymore, uh, like with this person or in this environment, but you're kind of healing, yeah. but you might still feel like, uh, like self like blaming yourself, like how their relationship ended, it was your fault, because it and you know, so uh, do, do all of these also apply? 
kind of post relationship. Yes, absolutely. And actually in, in a couple of moments, I'm going to kind of come back to it with another step of what happens with the self blame that's going to address what you just said. Okay. But yeah, because what I remind my clients of is we have hangovers from these relationships and the hangovers last a long time and they won't go away with water and an aspirin. <laughs> you know, they are going to be there. They're like our, you know, unfortunate friends we're going to have for the rest of our lives. They're always going to be there. It just means that we have to form a different relationship with it. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh when we're trying to overcome the self-blame, the second strategy was uh discernment. So really kind of trying to separate like what is the reality and what is then just you know uh what you are trying to kind of create in your mind just to keep the relationship going or just trying to make sense of it all or you know stuff like that and you said so do you like encourage that you know you said one tip for example if something happens write it down because then later you might romanticize it so you yeah kind of uh, encourage documentation through journaling is there yeah. do you i don't know do you share any journaling prompts or journaling exercises for people so they can with your clients when you want them to do this discernment piece like does something come to your mind or is it just kind of journaling I mean I I actually don't and there are some journaling prompts that I do have for things like self-worth perhaps and things like um, that but in general I really you know I really encourage clients to just tap into just what is your reality what is going on just journal about the day just acknowledge if something happened what I what I will say to what you just said is try not to put a judgment or a story on it always lean into just the facts just as if you were a court reporter or something what happened just say what happened and and almost kind of, um, you know, try to look at, okay, well, then that person said that and then I did this and then what happened and sort of try to feel like there's this very, very easy back and forth so you can track it and just understand factually what actually transpired versus whatever emotions came up and might have interfered in me seeing it clearly stick to the facts say so that you have that clarity piece and you don't muddle it up with frustration, anger you know, sadness, whatever. Mm, yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. And uh, similarly, what you did with the first, uh, first strategy, you summarize it very well. Can you again summarize for us why the strategy discernment works so effectively when we are trying to overcome the self-blame that narcissistic abuse causes? Well, again, the self-blame is just such an automatic um, pathway that we take because we've been conditioned for most of us in childhood from a narcissistic parent that their needs were the most important. So we always look at, I've got to work hard at making sure I'm attending to this. So the discernment is finally being free of childhood even and knowing as an adult, I have to remind myself I have choices. I have the ability to do things differently now, and I have the freedom and ability to think differently now because I'm not so reliant maybe on that relationship or any relationship the way I thought I was. So the discernment is actually understanding where am I in this, right? I'm finally needing to understand that there's a me, not just a me that was a part of somebody else. There's a me. So self-blame means you're still attached to the person. Self-blame means you're tethered in some way to feeling obligated. And the obligation is what's going to keep you stuck if you have this, this false belief that in some way you are necessary for somebody else to feel okay and to be okay and have their needs fulfilled. So you have to stop that by discerning, is this appropriate? I cannot be tethered to this anymore. And I need choice. I could choose to because that's free will. But if it's an automatic thing because I'm feeling responsible, that's toxic and manipulative. So discernment, that's that's why discernment is important. Mm. Clarity. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So when we are trying to overcome the self-blame that narcissistic abuse causes, the first strategy was boundaries. So you can create the space for yourself to have time for all of this. And uh, because otherwise you are just on autopilot. Uh, the second strategy was discernment. What is the third strategy? So the third one is actually um, interesting because when I was thinking of this, I thought, well, what would be some steps? And I was playing around with it. So the third one I thought would be necessary is actually grieving. 
because when you have been under a campaign of abuse from somebody toxic like that, you actually will start to understand. And this is why it's complicated when you do any therapy is as you become conscious, that's really quite a burden to understand the truth of what was previously unconscious to you. So now I'm going to be not just maybe rejoicing in the fact that, oh my gosh, I'm finally realizing I'm me and I don't need to do this. And I'm really going to start empowering myself, but you're going to have to start reflecting on all the losses. You know, you've had lost opportunities. You've had lost relationships. You might have lost your own identity because you have been so, um, manipulated and held hostage in the life of another person that you've had no opportunity to actually experience the fullness of who you are. And so how many years perhaps have gone by, or even as a person says, maybe I picked this job, right? Or this place to live because this is what maybe the parent wanted, if this is, you know, the situation, right? And maybe now you're thinking, Jesus, Louise, would I have even done this? Would have I have ever gone to that school? Would I have ever bought that house? Would I have ever bought that car? Would I be wearing these clothes? Would I have that friendship group? Would I want any of these things? So that can be a real existential crisis for people to understand where the hell am I? Because I've been operating almost like a zombie, to be honest with you, just going through the motions, but not really connected to myself. So I think that that has the potential of a real undoing and a crisis for people to know that they've never actually been um, the owner of their own soul. It's been somebody else. So I think there has to be a real sense of kindness to yourself, compassion, acceptance, grieving in all the ways that that looks. And it's not linear. And so even going back to what you said of, you know, would that happen in the moment or is it longstanding? You may think you're okay. You may be far removed from the narcissist and something might happen years later that really throws it right back in your face again. And you might start another process of grieving because something will pop up and remind you, Jesus, I thought that was okay. And here it is in my face. And I was still prone to whatever that decision was or second guessing myself or whatever. That hangover has long tentacles that go for some time. So grieving the loss of self is really important um, and honoring the fact that you have a right to grieve, that you have a right to know that something was taken from you. Mm, yeah. So this sounds like, this sounds like kind of a strategy that, you know, as you start to little bit, little by little to overcome the self-blame. So you are kind of moving towards more clarity, more understanding that, Hey, it's not all my fault. Then, because you move towards this clarity, you also get stronger within yourself. You get, uh, you start to understand things, and then, boom! You know, you also start to realize these losses. So it's kind of a this is a good thing to be aware of that you know this might hit you like <laughs> like around the corner once you start to overcome the self blame. And then you said that yeah, you know, allow yourself to grieve those losses and and that's okay is grieving really like i was going to ask how does one grieve is it just you go through the emotions allow yourself to sit with it or is it or is it everybody has to figure out what grieving means to them well i i think it's very personal it's a good point that you make because you know when you think about it and well this is the way i sort of try to think about it in my own mind anyway is that perhaps that issue of self-blame is a way of me avoiding some of these emotions Right. If I just accept the responsibility and the blame, then I can, in a way, defer dealing with something because it's simpler for me to just make the, the quick and easy action of, OK, it's my fault. It's my fault. I got to work because it's a known place to be. It's a familiar place to um, to occupy this place of stress. That's a known stress. That's a known place of defeat. But to look at a different way of, of suffering, which is. You know, if I don't allow myself, if I don't give myself that opportunity to blame, what actually would happen? What would I have to look at? What am I forgoing by, you know, by just doing that? So maybe I have to sit there and realize it may not feel good still, but it's a necessary pain that I have to get used to if I'm going to get to the other side of it. I can't take the easy route and just continue to accept self-blame. I've got to find that courage to look at the other emotions that are hidden under the surface that might scare the shit out of me because I've been avoiding it for so long. Anger, 
I mean, I mean, the anger that a person has, you know, and the sadness, I mean, just the sadness and the anger alone can be very destabilizing to a person. Mm, yeah, yeah. So the way the reason why the craving works when we are trying to overcome the self blame, is it really that it's kind of part of the process? It's part of you forcing yourself to put yourself into unfamiliar perhaps unfamiliar position mm -hmm. uh, which is stressful but this mm -hmm. is necessary so you can get finally to the other quote-unquote yeah. other side okay yeah yeah because uh, again remember when i was talking about the body activation you know if, mm -hmm. if i take that stereotypical um story of a child in a home that gets groomed into serving the parent right um, they, we know very well what happens, you know, that tension that is felt in the body. And so that tension means, uh oh, something's wrong. Something's bad. I've got to fix it. I've got to figure out how to make it better. Right. So imagine then that anytime you feel that it just becomes that natural process. Oh, that's right. It's my fault. Oh, that's right. There's a, something here I should be doing. So again, that's why it's important to say, these might be similar feelings coming up in the body that the body might say, oh, blame yourself to get away from it. Blame yourself to fix it. Blame yourself to remove yourself from this awkward place that you're experiencing. And instead, I have to sit there and go, hmm, I'm not going to take that path of self-blame, which is always available to me because I've learned to befriend it. I've learned that that's just what I do. I have to understand how can I stop it and pivot to equally an uncomfortable place, but one that will take me to a different place. If you know what I mean, instead of the cycle on that merry-go-round. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so when we are trying to overcome the self-blame uh, that narcissistic abuse causes, we have gone through first, strategy was boundaries. The second one was discernment. Third one was craving. What is next? The next one is differentiating. Now, the differentiating, this is where I'm going to get specific on some skills um, that I so love. And I hope that um, anyone listening will find some help with this because I really, really find this important. So in short, the differentiating is, say, in the moment when you're feeling activated or in the moment. And it doesn't matter. This goes to what you were mentioning before. It, it could be in the moment with the narcissist or it could be long like afterwards, right? When the hangover is being experienced and something might remind your body of that moment of feeling vulnerable. So there's two different things that I bring up with the differentiating. First one, and for any of your audience that might be familiar with this modality, belongs to internal family systems. And I don't know if you've done some work with that or if you're familiar with that. Um, are, are you yourself, Juliana? Uh, with like, are you asking me internal family systems? Internal family systems, if that's something you've ever um, heard of in your work or anything. I have heard it relates to kind of um, that, you know, different parts of yourself and but can you uh, just so yeah. we really know yeah. <laughs> yeah for sure absolutely um so i the way i like to explain it to my clients is i want you to think of yourself as a self there is a whole self that is perfectly fine and it has these qualities and so i'm going to repeat them verbatim of what those qualities are when we are self so self has eight c's so there's courage confidence clarity calm, creativity, curiosity, compassion, these wonderful qualities, if they're present, that means you're, you're with yourself. You are totally in the authentic self. You're embodied. And when we are with self, no matter what we're going through in our life, we can ride the waves of ups and downs and we have resilience, right? But what happens is because life is not simple and we are vulnerable to the ups and downs and we are wounded, um, what happens a very organic way is we break apart in a way, right? And meaning that there's always the self, but what happens is these parts of us that hold stories of pain or vulnerability or threat, and then other parts that show up in a way to protect these vulnerable parts, what happens is there just becomes a lot of confusion perhaps, because instead of me just being me, I have these parts that are operating with stories and fears that can flood me. So for example, this is hopefully going to make sense to your audience. I tell clients to think of themselves as the CEO of their life. So they are in charge and they're sitting at a big table and they're like, you know, in charge. But around this big table are all of these versions of you. And these versions represent various ages and various stories when something happened and 
that part still thinks that's exactly where you are. So let's say that when I was five, I was bullied on the playground, just for example. So I might be the age I am, 54, but there's a five-year-old that's always with me that is scared because they hold a pain of being bullied. And that never goes away. That is always going to be there. But here's the difference. Do I have a healthy relationship with that part? Or does that part have so much power that when I'm in a situation, it floods me and makes me as a 54-year-old think that something's going on that is as severe as what I might have felt when I was only five years old. And I had no power, perhaps. And I had no control over situations. So what I like to remind people of is try to practice encouraging a sense of, I'm okay, but a part of me needs some help. A part of me feels vulnerable. A part of me needs to feel more resilience and more love and more protection and more empowerment and encouragement to have these qualities. But I need to understand what that part feels when it feels worried that it's in proximity to somebody that overwhelms them and in proximity to somebody that takes them over and makes them feel like they're to blame. Because I'm not to blame, but that part seems to think it's to blame. So if I can develop a relationship and know that, in short, instead of me automatically being flooded and say, oh my God, what, what did I do wrong? I must've done something wrong. I've got to fix this. I take a breath for a moment and just remind myself, okay, I don't need to respond like it's an emergency or crisis, but right now there's a part of me that thinks that something is going on. And my obligation is to have a conversation with that part of me before I do anything else. I am going to talk to that part of me to understand what's happening before I start attending to anything outside of myself, because the very mechanisms of narcissistic abuse is that the person is not connected to themselves and they are always outsourcing and looking at the other person, right? I'm always going over there. Oh, you need me. I need to do something better, whatever. So no, I'm going to stop that. And I'm going to say, hmm. no, as the parent to my system, I'm going to talk to that part of me that seems to be upset and see what they need from me and what I need to do for them to protect us and help us feel better and stronger in the situation and build on that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Also made me think the CEO kind of example that you gave that a good CEO, if there is someone in the table and really struggling, wouldn't just go and make a decision, but kind of say, hey, what are you struggling with? <laughs> and like then Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay so yeah. practice of reminding yourself that like I've got to remember there's me like I'm so focused on outside of me I've got to practice a sense of inner work inner child whatever you want to call it but do it through that um that lens of curiosity and compassion and and a desire to understand it because you don't want it to feel that way anymore you want that part to feel safe and happy mm. and protected the the other part of that, if I may, is oftentimes when, so let's just put it as simply as it's my fault that a person would say, right? And we know that when a person is activated and has that very quick, you know, like that story follows state, oh God, there's that feeling. So what is the story I put on it? It's my fault. So it's such an automatic sense of truth. And that's part of the problem why we have to differentiate. Is it true or is it just a thought that I decide to believe in? And so one of the tools that I remind clients to do, and this is through acceptance and commitment therapy work, is to create some space between yourself and the thought. And that might take practice because oftentimes, again, we're creatures of habit. The brain is lazy. So whatever comes up in your mind, you're just going to boom, go to. So what I tell people to do is to practice doing something like this. Watch your posture. The posture of the body is going to also inform the body of what to believe. So if I'm feeling tired and defeated, I'm probably holding my body slouched. I'm not really feeling strong and confident with my shoulders back and my head up. If I commit to a thought and I'm slouched, I'm going to feel worse than if I have that same thought and I'm holding my body up. And anybody can try this. If I even, if, if anybody listening stands up right now and puts themselves in a power position where it's like a star and you say something like it's my fault and then sit down and collapse into yourself like you're in the fetal position and then say it's my fault, I guarantee doing that, you're going to feel something a little heavier than if you were standing up and feeling that sense of strength and confidence, even though you're saying the same word. 
And another thing that I say to people, just to remind yourself, and this will become normal if you continue doing it, is practicing a sense of, oh, no, I notice I have a thought. So I remind clients to say, well, just say that I, or it's my fault. And what do you feel? Now say out loud, I have a thought. It's my fault. Three times out loud. Then say, I notice I have a thought. It's my fault. And most of the time, it's not going to wipe it away, but most of the time clients will start to feel safer in relationship to the thought because what they're practicing is it's just that thought. I don't have to just say, oh, it's my fault. I have a thought. It's my fault. There's a difference. Mm. So it's all about supporting the nervous system of understanding and breaking a pattern of automatic assumptions and beliefs that you can feel very addicted to. That's your addiction. Yeah. And this strategy sounds like especially use this during those self-blaming moments. So, you know, you something yeah. triggers you and then you like when we are in our in, on our journeys of overcoming the self-blame, there are going mm -hmm. to be many hard days when we really feel like it's really tough. So yeah. especially those days when we just feel like automatically just blaming ourselves really like i think that tips you now shared during this like the strategy number four which was different differentiate these strategies could really help us during yeah. those tough moments and yeah. yeah yeah and and again i would just remind um your audience to know that you really need to make sure you're sensing what's going on in my body because that body activation is really going to be something that's going to influence the way you decide to believe or accept a thought or belief which is the same as it's my fault i'm to blame so you have to practice understanding i need to feel what it's like to be in my body and to hold space to understand it's okay i can feel this it doesn't mean i have to just go to that place i can just be in relationship to the thought without believing it to be true and relationship to the part of me that has a wound and not necessarily believe that it's true today, giving myself opportunity to consider there's other stuff going on, but I have to give myself space to acknowledge it and not feel so pressured and overwhelmed with it. Mm, yeah. Thank you. This makes a lot of sense. So when we are trying to overcome the self-blame that narcissistic abuse causes, we have gone through first strategy was uh, boundaries. The second one was discernment. Third one was grieving. The fourth one you just talked about was differentiating. What is the final fifth one? The last one that I've decided anyway to put down that I would um, really encourage people to look at is what I call reclamation of self. And so what that is, is really taking the time to start nurturing the truth of who you are and committing to a sense of self-care, um, literally maybe getting to know yourself for the first time ever, because until you reclaim the truth of who you are, you leave yourself vulnerable for continued campaigns against you from people that will take advantage of maybe the things that you thought you were proud of, like being a giving spirit or being somebody who's gracious or whatever. So you want to remind yourself, okay, I can make choices to do that, but I really need to get to know myself and who I am. So I'm going to determine what are my core values and beliefs? What is and is not okay for me? You know, uh, how do I tolerate saying no and knowing that that doesn't mean that I'm a bad person or I'm failing? How do I attend to myself fully? Am I taking care of myself or have I forgotten how to prioritize my needs because it's been so much about the other person? So what are my habits like? Do I make sure that I'm taking care of my body right by making sure that I eat well, that I'm sleeping properly, that I'm exercising? A body that is not being nurtured and cared for is going to be deficient when it comes to maintaining a sense of self so that you don't open up yourself to further abuse. So you really want to protect and nurture and do whatever it is to prioritize and do something that's probably quite foreign, which is to be selfish with yourself which will perhaps bring up blame again, because that's such a foreign concept to take care of yourself, because there's going to be criticism. Be aware that anything you do for yourself is going to be scrutinized and criticized by the person that otherwise had you taken care of them. So flipping that is going to mean that you're going to be susceptible to people undermining it. And you just have to be prepared to know that you have to double down on it and be very, very purposeful on reclaiming who you are. 
hundred percent. It's not as fancy as the other tool that I talked about there, but it's very, very necessary to seal it up. Okay. Okay. So again, like how does one actually do this? Is it that you just have to figure out kind of figure out what are your needs, get to know yourself so you can reclaim yourself or like, like somebody's like, okay, I don't know how I reclaim myself. How how would I do that? So again, one of the things that I really lean into is truly looking at core values and beliefs. And you could do that on the internet. You could do it anywhere and maybe just pick five, pick five, be reasonable with yourself. What are things that even if I'm not experiencing them, what kind of resonates when I even read it, when I look at it, what sparks some interest of curiosity within me? Um, If I can recognize with where I am in my life, here I am, but here's where I want to be. Can I allow myself 1% difference every day that makes me feel like I'm on the track of going to a different place instead of occupying this place where I'm serving other people all the time? Um, Can I develop a mantra that adds a sense of compassion for myself? Like I'm a good person who is trying every day to get back on my feet. I'm a good person who is, who has, not ask for enough in life, but I'm learning how to ask for more. You know, I'm a good person who is risking looking like a fool sometimes because I'm willing to try new things because I've never known what it's like to operate with my own independence because it's always been about somebody else. Am I willing to try new things? Am I willing to stretch a little bit? Something to give you a sense of empowerment that is separate from the needs of the other, of the narcissist or perhaps other people because you've just been prone to look at other people's needs instead of your own. So reclamation of self is just learning how to stretch a little bit and maybe even identify in a moment, okay, this is what I think I want to do because this is normal for me. This is what was habitual for me. And what else could I maybe do right now? So even inviting in what choice would look like, because again, we become such habitual creatures that we forget that there's options. So reclamation of self can also just be, I want to open up opportunity for other things that might feel foreign, but that means I'm allowing myself growth, something different. Leanne mentioned that one effective way to reclaim yourself is to examine your core values and beliefs. I also think that understanding how narcissistic abuse has affected our core values is essential. So I put together a seven-day journaling exercise that helps you recognize how narcissistic abuse has affected your core values and give yourself space and time to re-evaluate your core values. The link to access this free seven-day journaling program is in the podcast notes. But why do I think looking at how narcissistic abuse has affected your core values is essential? Narcissistic abuse by its nature is a destructive force that can distort your perception of yourself and your core values. You may have been coerced to prioritize the narcissist values over your own or made to believe your values are flawed, unimportant, stupid or uninteresting. To recognize how this abuse has impacted your core values requires deep introspection. It's about reflecting on questions like, what did I believe in before the abuse? How have these beliefs changed after my experiences? Do I now have values that are mine or have they been imposed upon me? Have I lived in a way that doesn't align with what I truly value? Recognizing and understanding the influence of narcissistic abuse on your core values is the starting point to reclaiming your identity. The seven-day journaling program will allow you to rediscover, or maybe discover for the first time, what truly matters to you separate from the abuser's influence. Let's get back to the interview with Leanne. Can you again summarize, so why reclamation of self helps us to overcome the self-blame that narcissistic abuse causes? So self-blame, again, is too affixed to the needs of another person. And that also endorses that there's no self. There's no me. It's all about the focus of that other person and making sure they're okay. So the reclamation of self is a necessary component of understanding. I'm a person with my own needs. I'm a person with my own values. I'm my own person. I'm just my own entity. And I'm learning how to create, even in that sense, a boundary because I'm my own bubble. Because if I start at the beginning where there were no boundaries, there was no sense of separation between me maybe and that other person because we're so enmeshed and we're so 
like together. And so the reclamation is truly the work of remembering, I need to know that I am my own person because otherwise the self-blame comes up because I'm still thinking I'm that person. I'm a part of that person. I've got the, like the needs of that person are my responsibility. Reclamation of self is acknowledging, no, I'm me and they're responsible for themselves. I'm only responsible for me. So I've got to get to know me so that I'm anchored to something because what's happened is you become anchored to another person and lost a sense of self. So that's going to take some work of understanding how do I put roots in the ground that are, you know, um, just about who I am and not who that person is. So building a sense of character and self and authenticity for you to remain anchored and connected to your wholeness. Thank you. Thank you so much. So uh, overcoming the self-blame that narcissistic abuse causes. Uh, Today we have been talking about first strategy was boundaries. The second one was discernment. Third one was grieving. Fourth one was differentiating. For, fifth one was reclamation of self. All these made a lot of sense. Also all these different strategies, they take a lot of work and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's nice to know that now, you know, people have some kind of ideas how they can you know, uh, overcome the self-blame. Do you now, Leanne, have any, I don't know, final words about all these five strategies and in general about overcoming the self-blame? Well, good luck <laughs> to anybody doing it. Um, because, uh, you know, I'm in recovery from narcissistic abuse as well. I mean, I think anybody that does this work has um, intimate experience of how difficult it is. So I think what I would say is to anybody listening, please give yourself grace, give yourself grace to know that it is a process and you cannot expect a magic wand to come and just fix it. Even with awareness, it is unbelievably challenging to truly pull yourself out of it. So just know that you can do it. You just need to remain committed to the process to be kind to yourself as you slowly pull yourself away. And, you know, just check it with yourself on a regular basis so that you can track it and know that even if it's 1% every day or 1% every week, it's still growth. Don't, don't underestimate those little tiny steps and how they are getting you to where you need to go. They're all important. Mm. I agree. Thank you so much. And I want to thank everyone for listening to this. And thank you, Leanne, so much for coming here today and giving such great strategies that we all can use to overcome the self-blame that narcissistic abuse causes. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Juliana. I really appreciate you guys uh, connecting with me. It's wonderful. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends and family. Have a wonderful rest of your day and see you in the next episode.